up to the book of Acts um, in chapter 13. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay because all the verses are going to be up, there, up there on the screen. You can follow along there. And we'll read that here in just a few moments, but let's actually go to the Lord and pray one more time and just ask his blessing now upon our service and upon his word. Heavenly Father, I do thank you uh, just for this book that we hold in our hands. This, this not just words on a page. It's not just some random things that some writers wrote. It's your holy word. It, it's, it's your inspired word, God. It, it says in here that it's God-breathed. Lord, you, you showed these men what, what to write down, and, and it was for us. It was for our instruction. It, it was so that we could have the wisdom to walk through this world in a way that brings you glory. Father, sometimes when we get into this word, we, we need to be encouraged. And if anybody here tonight, tonight needs to be encouraged, I pray they be encouraged. Father, sometimes we need to be challenged. We may even be, need to be convicted a little bit, God, with things going on in our life. And if, if, if somebody in here needs that tonight, Lord, I pray that you would move in them. God, what I love about you is that you know us. Well, we're not just a number on a book, but you know each one of us as individuals. You see us. You know everything that's going on in our lives. You know everything that we need. And so, God, you know tonight what every single person here needs from you, needs from this sermon, needs from this passage of Scripture. And I pray that you would move in mighty, mighty ways. We give this service to you, this time to you. Speak, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. And, you know, throughout these first 12 chapters, it really has been fun for me just to go through this again. I mean, I've read through it a number of times, but to, to, to study it in, in detail like we have, it's just been, it's just been awesome. Really just seeing the, the very beginnings of the church as we know it. Um, here in chapter 13, if you can kind of get the timeline, from the moment Jesus died and rose again, it's been some like 10 to 15 years that have passed. And by this time, the, the church has expanded all over the place. Literally tens upon tens of thousands of people have been saved and had given their lives to Jesus and become Christians. Certainly people there in Jerusalem and Israel, but, but even the surrounding nations all the way around them, the gospel was spreading like wildfire. It really was just, just awesome. I mean, it, the gospel had reached people from all walks of life, the, the rich and the poor, both the Jews and the non-Jews, people of stature like the the, the um, the, the Jewish priests, many of them were, they were even saved by this point. And then we saw people like that we never would have expected. Like a, like a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, and, and his family had given their lives to the Lord. I mean, the, these first 12 chapters of Acts, in my mind, if they've shown us anything, they have shown us that there is incredible, incredible power in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's really amazing to think about when we think about the gospel is that it's just this simple message, that just this few spoken words about Christ's life and death and resurrection, they, those simple words give God the opportunity to move in people's hearts. Those simple words have the power to, to transform even the vilest of sinners into a holy saint for the Lord. Like, really, just a few words? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, I quote this one often, but he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, that, that simple message, is the power of God unto salvation. Th those words of the message of Christ have the power of God attached to it, so much so that it has the ability to open people's eyes to their need. Something we have to share, as these disciples of Christ did throughout the book of Acts. Your Romans 10, 17 tells us that, that faith comes by hearing. That is hearing the, the gospel message 
of Jesus Christ. And when somebody shares that simple and yet amazing truth of what Christ has done, like it literally opens up the door and gives them an opportunity to respond in faith. That's what we've seen and throughout the first 12 chapters, just person after person, time after time again, the power of this gospel at work. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight as we continue on here in Acts chapter 13. Let's dig into it, starting with reading verse 1, and we'll kind of just work through it as we go. So, verse 1 tells us this. About that time, King, oops, excuse me, wrong chapter, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, and Manaen, I believe it's pronounced, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas and Saul. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. Now, if you can remember a couple weeks ago, um, Saul and Barnabas had, had been up in this Antioch area. A bunch of people were saved. Um, they got the message that there was going to be this massive famine that was going to hit Jerusalem. And so um, the church there, this Gentile church, um, they, they saved a bunch of money and gave it to Paul and Barnabas, and, and they sent them back to Jerusalem with this aid so the Christians there in Jerusalem wouldn't perish because of this famine. So they, they did that. Um, they went there. They spent some time there. And the last verse we saw last week in verse 25 of chapter 12 tells us that that. Saul and Barnabas, along with John Mark, um, which was Barnabas' cousin, they all traveled from Jerusalem back up to Antioch, where they continued to serve the Lord and minister to the people there. So they were back up in the Antioch, and so we get here into verse 1, and it wasn't just those three. We also see a number of other characters that were, that were up there with them. Now, as I think about the list of people just in verse 1 here, it really is amazing when you think of, of the people that made up this church. I mean, you literally have people from all different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, different walks of life, from different areas of the world, from completely different cultures, and yet what you see is they work together with incredible unity and harmony. Now, if you think about just the group of men here, these handful of men that are just mentioned here in verse 1, can I tell you something? There was plenty of things to have controversy about, and yet they put those things away from them. I mean, think about Saul for a moment. Now, Saul, again, we know is the Apostle Paul, right? But this was the guy that was murdering Christians. He was persecuting them, putting them in jail. He says he wrote their death sentence, essentially, and had them, many of them killed. This was, this was that guy. Well, we know he got saved, right? He gave his life to the Lord, and God had just gloriously saved him and changed him, but, but he had that past. You know, Barnabas was a, was a Jew, and the rest of these guys were Gentiles. Simeon said he was, he was a black man, more than likely somewhere from Africa. Certainly wasn't a Jew. Um, it's interesting. Some people think this may be the same Simeon or Simon, because they kind of use the name back and forth, I guess. But they think possibly he was the one that could carry the cross of Jesus. But if you remember when the, when the cross fell, they think that was possibly him. I mean, they don't know. It's just speculation. But it's still interesting. Uh, you have this man named Lucius, who was also from Africa. He, he was from the, the, this town called Cyrene, which is kind of the north coast of Africa. And then Manaen was a man who grew up in, in the household of, of Herod Antipas. He, he was a childhood companion, a friend of this man. Now, who was this Herod Antipas? Well, he was the guy that had John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, murdered. He, he had him beheaded. And so you think about these people... You talk about different walks of life and like really murky pasts, and, and yet they put it all behind, behind them. They, they put those, set those things aside because it didn't matter because they had far more to unite around than they had that was going to separate them, and they worked together in a beautiful, beautiful 
way. You know, when it comes to those of us who belong to Christ, the truth is it doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter what color our skin is. It doesn't matter what language we speak or what continent we come from. It doesn't matter what our past is. The truth of it is, if you know Jesus as Savior, we're one. We're one in Christ. You know, the, the, what I love about the gospel message is the gospel, it unifies. You know, when people respond to the message of Jesus, of Jesus and get saved, like it, it brings these people from, from every walk of life together into one family with one common mission, with one common purpose. Ephesians 4 tells us in verses 4 through 6, listen to what this says. He says, there is one body, one spirit, and just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. There's just one. We're part of that family, united in Christ. Romans 10 and verse 12 tells us this, that, that there is no difference between Jews or Greeks, the same Lord is the Lord of all, and gives richly to all who call upon Him, for everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. God doesn't care where you're from, or what your past is, or what you look like. He wants your heart. It doesn't matter. Colossians 3 and verse 11 says, in this new life, talking about the new life in Christ, it says it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric or uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. You know, it's the, the world we live in is a diverse world. I mean, you look around, there's diversity everywhere. Social diversity, ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, and so on. And because of this diversity, it, it, throughout the ages, and even in our world today, this diversity has caused incredible division. It's caused wars in our world. Yet for the Christian, for those of us that know Christ as Savior, none of those things should matter because the truth of it is, in Christ, we have far more in common than we could ever have that should separate us as individuals. And I mean, you think about our salvation, right? Like, we, we were all saved by the same blood of Christ that covers us. We were all adopted into the same heavenly family. We all have the same heavenly Father. In, in the end, Romans 8 tells us we're going to be equal shareholders in, in, the, in heaven. I mean, we're co-heirs with Christ, like in our eternal home, there's going to be no division, no meanness, no one hurting each other. There's going to be absolute peace and harmony. I mean, you think about our lives before Christ. We all needed Jesus equally. Every single one of us were, were sinners. What right do we have to judge anybody? We, we don't. We all had to recognize we were sinners. We all had to look to Jesus' death and resurrection as our means of salvation. If you know Christ, there was a day that you had to look to him and say, Jesus, I've sinned against you. Come into my life and forgive me. Can I tell you something? There's an old saying that says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's one door we must all go through. We have far more that unites us as people than we could ever have that divides us. So we need to focus on what unites us and not what divides us as people. I mean, you think about our purpose. You think about our, our mission. What's our purpose? The Bible tells us our purpose as Christians is to bring glory to Almighty God. At the end of the day, we are to bring glory to God through our lives. 
What's our mission? Our mission is to take this message of Jesus to as many people as far as he gives us the ability to go and share this. Can I tell you something? Both of those things are hard to do. It's not easy to live for Jesus. It's not easy to bring him glory because I find myself, I don't know about you, I find myself falling flat on my face way too often messing up. Sharing the gospel is hard. But can I tell you something? When we're united together, as the old saying goes, united we stand, divided we fall. When, when Christians like these men here in verse 1, that all this different past, all the different groups of people, and yet they, they work together in beautiful unity. And God used them in mighty ways. Let's read verses 2 through 5. It says this, One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. And so after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit they went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. And there in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. And John Mark went with them as their assistant. Now, as was probably custom knowing these men, these men were spending some time in worship. They were, they were gathered together. They, they had all been spending some time in, in, in fasting. What is fasting? Fasting is, is something that honestly should be a part of every Christian's life. It's not something that only super religious heroes of the faith do. It's something that we should all do. You know, fasting and prayer is about, it's about bringing us into a greater focus on God. It's about, it's about teaching us as people to walk in greater dependence upon Him. What is fasting? In, in Scripture, it's really designed, well, show, it's shown us in Scripture as people, they give up food for a time. It could be a meal. It could be a day. It could be a week. Jesus did it for 40 days. But, but the idea is we give up something that we need. We give up something that we crave. And, and instead of being fed with, with physical food, we're, we're relying on God to feed us with spiritual food. It's kind of the idea. It, we, we give up something so God meets us where we're at. So it's kind of like this. It's kind of saying, God, I'm willing to sacrifice my comforts and my needs so that I can receive more of you. That's what fasting is all about. Like, have you ever had a time in your life where you need a direction? Or you needed wisdom? Have you ever had a time where you've kind of been at a crossroads in your life and you, you didn't know which way to turn? Like, have you ever had a season in your life where you, 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 like some sin of some sort had kind of had a hold on you and, and no matter how try hard you tried to get rid of it or to, to shake it or to get over it, you just couldn't seem to do it? Have you ever had any of those issues in your life? You may need to spend some time fasting and prayer. Take a day, take a couple days, whatever that is, take a meal. And, and instead of taking in food, spend some time in prayer and call out to the Lord. When we seek God with that kind of seriousness, I, what I know, but what the Scripture tells us that God will answer. And this is exactly what, what Saul and Barnabas and the others did. They were, they were seeking the direction from the Lord. And when, when they, as they sought Him, the Lord spoke and as he spoke, the message was given that, that Barnabas and Saul had a job to do because God was about to start them on a mission that really would define the rest of Saul and Barnabas' life. They're, they were both missionaries kind of from this point forward. Now, if you remember back to Acts chapter 9, Saul and Barnabas both knew this was coming. It just hadn't happened yet. 
When, when Saul was saved, um, the Lord told him, I'm going to send you out. You're going to be going to the, to the Jews and to the Gentiles and, and to preach to kings. You're, you're going to be my missionary to the nations, bringing my gospel forth. So, so they knew it was coming. It was just finally at this moment up in Antioch when they were seeking the Lord through fasting and prayer, God says, now's the time. I'm sending you out. So the church leaders of the church of Antioch, they, they laid their hands on, on Saul and Barnabas, and John Mark went with them, and, and they prayed for God to be with them, and they, and they sent them out to be missionaries, sent them out to do God's work. And as they went, it tells us in verse 4 that they, they went down to the seaport there in Seleucia and went on to the island of Cyprus. Um, if you could kind of picture Israel and, and the Mediterranean Sea, it's a little island about right here, just to the west of, of Israel. Now, question, why would Saul, why would Barnabas, why would Mark, why, why would they leave their lives behind to, to go on this mission that they really had no idea how it was going to go or, or what God was going to do or whether or not they'd even make it back? Like, why would, why would they do that? I think the answer is because they were compelled to go in a couple different ways. They were compelled by the reality that God sent them. I mean, this was God's command. I'm sending you out. And so, to a certain extent, they were compelled by the voice of God to go. And if they wanted to walk in obedience, they needed to say yes and, and go. But, but I, I think there was also a compulsion inwardly. There was something on the inside of them that, that, that had a desire to, to do this. I mean, you think about Saul especially, but also Barnabas. He was saved as well. Mark... I mean, Jesus had transformed these people's lives. He, these, these men had experienced the grace of God through Christ. And they wanted to go. It was their heart's desire, I believe, to go and do whatever it takes to, to get this message of Jesus out to the people that God was calling them to. And the reason I believe this was their heart is because they were doing it before he ever officially sent them. I mean, for... For years, Saul had been out preaching. Barnabas had been doing ministry. We saw some of that in the prior chapters. I mean, they had a heart for people. They had a heart for the gospel. And so when God said go, they answered the call and said, yes, Lord. You know, when you really stop and think about what God has done for us through Christ, we should be equally compelled to go tell people about Jesus. See, the gospel should compel us to to take this message to this world that's around us. We have the command to go. See, we're compelled by the command of God, just like Saul and Barnabas. I mean, you think about the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus says, therefore, go. Go make disciples. Go make followers of me. Teach them. Come alongside of them. Bring them into the church. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 tells us that we are Christ's ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is? They go and they speak for the king. Like, we're Christ's ambassadors, and it says God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. God has, he sent us out. You know the word church, like we come to church? When this was, this word was spoken in the Greek language, um, back and think about the first century church when it was beginning, the word for church was this Greek word called ekklesia. Have you ever heard that word, ekklesia? Literally, this word means the sent ones. The, the church literally means the sent ones. 
We are all sent. We all have a calling in our life. We're all compelled by the command of God to go forth from this building to our communities, to our neighborhoods, to our family, to our coworkers, to wherever God leads us. And, and we're compelled by the command of God to go share this incredible message of Jesus. But can I tell you something? We should have, we should be compelled inwardly as well. When you think and just stop for a moment and, and consider all that God has done for us, the hope we have in Him, the fact that He has rescued us from this world of darkness, he has, he has set us free from sin and has washed us clean, and we now have an eternal hope set before us in Christ. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It was grace. You think about that? There should be something inside of us that says, God, I want to do this. I want to be your hands and feet. I want to share the same hope somebody shared with me. I want to give somebody else the same opportunity that the person that, that got me saved gave me when they told me about Jesus. See, it, it's an inward compelling for us that we, we should have a desire to go. Go where? That's the hard part, isn't it? I mean, it's like we know we're supposed to do these things, but the hard part is it's like where do we go? Where are the open doors? Now, verse 5 tells us that Paul and Barnabas, they, they went into the Jewish synagogues, right? So if you think Jewish synagogue, it's basically Jewish church. It's kind of the idea. But as I said a few weeks ago, during this time, they would have a time where anybody could stand up, any of the men of the synagogue could stand up and, and, and speak, speak some scripture. And so Saul and Barnabas used this opportunity. This was their open door to these people. So when this time came, yeah, they, they stood up and spoke, all right, and they spoke about Jesus. That they would go into the Old Testament and just show them passage after passage after passage about how Christ is the character throughout the entire Bible, and they would come alongside and, 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 and speak to these people like this. Where are open doors? I don't know. Sometimes it's at work, sometimes it's at school, sometimes it's in our neighborhood. I don't know, but what I do know is we all have one. God has placed us where we are and amongst the people that we are because he has this job for us to do. We all have this calling. You know, God has showed us so much grace. If he's transformed your life, friends, there should be something inside of us that desires to honor him by going out and sharing this with others. You know, Romans 12 and verse 1 tells us that this is our proper response of worship, to offer our lives to our Lord as this living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. It's our calling. So anyways, Saul and, and, and Barnabas and Mark, they're, they're traveling through the island of Cyprus, going from, from town to town, sharing Jesus. And this is kind of what we're going to pick up in verse 6 and read through verse 10. So it says this, um, Afterwards, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man, and the governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him. For he wanted to hear the word of God, but Elimus, the, the sorcerer, as his name means in the Greek, um, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. And Saul, also known as Paul, um, remember Saul and Paul are the same guy. Um, so Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye, and then he said, You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit 
and fraud and and, an enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? So anyways, as they're going through this island, they they come to this town of of Paphos. And in this town is where the, the Roman governor essentially was stationed there. And this Roman governor had this man named Bar-Jesus who was described here as a a false prophet, a a Jewish sorcerer that had attached himself to this man and essentially he was controlling his every move. I mean, this man not only had him, but he had the people of this town hoodwinked into thinking he was something special. Now, whether he was actually able to predict the future... Whether he was actually able to perform magic, we don't know exactly, but what he, what was apparently, he was doing was apparently convincing uh, enough that he had led the people, even the Roman governor, to believe that, that he was the real deal. Now, you read stuff like this in Scripture, and like I said a number of weeks ago, like, is this just like mythology? Is this just like crazy stuff you see on TV, witches and sorcerers and all this kind of stuff? No, they're real. They're, they're very, very real. As I, like, like I said, I mean, this is something we see throughout Scripture. It's, it's alive and well today. Magic and witchcraft and sorcery and all these things. And I just want to just remind you, at the very root of these things, it is satanic. It is absolutely evil and should be avoided. Like these things are becoming more and more popular in our culture. And I'll just, just give you this warning. We need to make sure that neither we nor our children nor our grandchildren get sucked into them. They, they, they show them to us as entertainment, but they're not entertainment. It, it, is, it is a tactic of the enemy to get people sucked into this evil. And, and it, it will have an effect on your life. So anyways, we, we don't know what kind of signs and wonders this man did, but we do know that he was not only a fraud, he was downright evil. Because it's interesting, his name's interesting. It says here his name was Bar-Jesus, that, that Bar means son of. And so he was like the, the son of Jesus, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? And yet in verse 10, I love Paul's like, you ain't no son of Jesus, you're the son of the devil. <laughs> he just called him out for who he really was. The point was, but he was not a good guy. You know, as a so-called prophet, he was falsely claiming to speak for God. That's what a prophet was supposedly, supposedly did. A prophet speaks for God. And so he was saying he was speaking for God, but he wasn't really speaking for God. It, it was false. And as a sorcerer, he spoke perform magic, whether he faked it or whether it was real, because Satan has the power to do some of these crazy things. We see it with Moses way back in the day. Moses throws a snake down, turns or his staff down, and turns into a snake. The Egyptian sorcerers did the thing. They throw their snaps down, staffs down, turns into, I mean, crazy stuff. It's real. But anyways, beyond what, how, how he was doing and what he was doing, what we do know is this man had influenced people in an incredible way. And so Paul and Barnabas and Mark, they come into town and they're sharing Jesus, and this man was just simply not happy about it. Why not? Why why was he not happy about hearing a message so wonderful? I mean, isn't the gospel an awesome message? The message of Jesus, the message of hope, right? Well, the problem with that message it was a, the, the gospel is a controversial message. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a message that when, when people are confronted with it, confrontation is going to happen. It's a confrontational message at its very nature. Like, for those that receive Jesus, 
The gospel is a message of forgiveness and, and salvation. It's a message that tells us that we can be set free from the chains of sin, that we can live a new way with Jesus as king of our lives. It's a message that tells us that we have a new owner's manual that will set our, our path on a course that will bring glory to God. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I'm grateful for those things. I'm grateful for this book. But can I tell you something? For the non-believer, for the non-Christian who has no interest in what the gospel's selling, Bar-Jesus had no interest in what Paul was selling. See, to them, you're telling me that i got to change? You're telling me that somebody else is going to have an authority over my life? Some book's going to tell me how I'm supposed to live? Nah, I don't want none of that. That's the response of a lot of people. A great message, but they just don't want anything to do with it. And those people that, that just don't want anything to do with it, rarely it's just a, no thanks. Usually confrontation happens. Whether it's an argument or people get angry. Some, there's bad things that happen when people share the gospel with some people around the world. It really shouldn't surprise us that people respond to the message of Jesus in anger if they don't want anything to do with it because the reality of it is the gospel is not just the message of hope, it's also a message of judgment. See, for the Christian, it's a message of hope. For those that don't want it, it's a message that tells them you are a sinner that is going to be judged by Almighty God someday and without Christ you will spend eternity in hell. That's the message of the gospel. And when you tell somebody that, it's just like, you get away from me. I don't want to, I don't want to hear that message. That's, that's the response of a lot of people very, very often. This was certainly the response of, of this bar Jesus. You know, 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us that the, that the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved, it's like the very power of God. We see it from two different perspectives. Now, when it came to this man, Bar-Jesus, or this Elimus, as he's also called, he, he certainly didn't want anything to do with Jesus himself, but the thing was is he also didn't want the Roman governor to hear about Jesus either. He had control of this man, and he didn't want to lose it. Have you ever seen the cartoon Aladdin, the Disney cartoon? Who's seen that one? Anybody? Okay, a few of us, right? Remember Jafar? He had his little staff, and he had absolute control of the sultan. Oh, I'm not going to do that. You will do this, you know, and you're spinning and everything else. If you can picture that, that's kind of what was going on here. I mean, not literally, but I mean, that's kind of what was going on here. This guy had this governor so hoodwinked, he had him in his pocket. He had this guy wrapped around his finger, and he literally did everything that he wanted him to do, and he did not want to give it up. And so it tells us that he was doing everything he could essentially to keep this man from hearing the message that Paul and Barnabas were speaking. Can I tell you something? The gospel is not just a confrontational message. The gospel will face opposition when we go out and share it. This is just the reality of this mission we've been given. It's gonna, we're we're going to be opposed. You know, Satan knows his time is short, and he is doing all that he can to, to stop the advancement of God's kingdom. You know, as, as I've said a number, a number of occasions, Satan knows his end. It's written. 
He knows his end is sure. The only thing he doesn't know is when it's coming. And so everything we see him doing in this world is just him biding his time. It's him trying to, in his, in his crazy mind, extending the timeline so he can have control for just a little bit longer. Matthew 24 and verse 14 tells us that the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, it will be preached in the world so that it will go out and it will reach every single nation. And then it says, when that happens, then the end will come. See, that end is what Satan is trying to avoid. He's trying to avoid, and he's doing everything he can to stop Christians from, from sharing this message. He's doing everything that he can to stop people from hearing this message because he knows that every single person that responds in faith to Jesus is one person closer to Jesus returning to put an end to his reign. How does he do that? How does Satan do this? Well, one way we see here is he, he, he sends his pawns into battle. You know, Satan has control of a lot of people in this world. He has control of world leaders. He has control of people who put legislation and laws into place. He has control of governors and community leaders. He literally has pawns everywhere in this world doing his bidding. Ephesians 2 and verse 2 tells us that, that he, Satan, is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. It should come to no surprise to us that sharing the gospel in parts of the world is illegal. Because Satan has his pawns and they're stopping the gospel. It should come to no surprise that the, the Christian church is constantly being attacked. It should come to no surprise that, that lawmakers want to keep Jesus out of our schools and, and out of our workplaces. Can I tell you something? Satan has his evil stinking fingers in everything. And we see his work all over the place. So he has his pawns put into battle. Not only that, he also limits the spread of the gospel by putting fear in us. I mean, this is spiritual warfare at its finest. Like Satan puts doubt and fear and anxiety in us just at the thought of this mission. I mean, if, if you've told anybody about Jesus ever in your life, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you see this open door, you see this opportunity, and you want to go tell them about Jesus, and all of a sudden the butterflies start fluttering about 5,000 miles an hour, and, you're, and your palms are sweating, and you're in your mind going, should I or shouldn't I? This isn't really an open door. Is it God? I know, I know I'm supposed to, but I'm, what, what are they going to do? What are they going to say? Who's experienced that? You know where that's coming from? That's Satan. He's putting fear and doubt and anxiety inside of you because he does not want you to share that message. He convinces us that we don't, we're not smart enough to tell that message. We're, we don't have what it takes. He also limits the spread of the gospel by putting distractions in our lives, by keeping us busy, by diverting our focus. He puts things in our lives that get us angry and, and frustrated. Can I tell you something about those distractions, those irritations of life, those frustrations? You know what they do? They take our focus off of our mission and put them on ourselves. And Satan wins another battle. The gospel is going to face opposition, but finally, here's the good news. The gospel will prevail. In the end, the gospel will prevail. Let's read our final two verses, verse 11 and verse 12. He says this, Watch now. For the Lord has laid his hand of punishment on you. 
and you'll be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. And instantly, mist and darkness came over that man's eyes. Talk about Bar-Jesus. And, and, he, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. But look at verse 12. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. So Paul wasn't having any of this man's nonsense. This man was trying to do everything he could to stop this governor from hearing the gospel. And like Paul called down the power of God, literally, and says, shut your mouth, you're blind. I mean, just like that. Boom. I mean, wow. He went from a tough guy to a man that was, help, somebody, help. You know, I mean, just the power of God is amazing. Now, this, this sounds a little harsh, but this also sounds familiar. Because it was the same Saul who 10, 15 years before this was also blinded by the Lord. Remember on the road to Damascus? This man saw when he was going to round up some more Christians and persecute them and chuck them in jail and have them killed. It was that same Saul that Jesus appeared to and he was blinded. And I just, I can't prove this, but I can't help but wonder if this wasn't just Saul, this wasn't Saul just being mean, I just can't help but wonder if this was Saul going, you know what? Blindness saved me. Maybe it'll open your eyes too. I don't know. Purely speculation. But whatever were the, the, the results for that guy was, he, what I do know is the results for that governor is that man was gloriously saved. When he, I, love, I just love what he says in that last verse. He says, he was astonished. Not at that man being blind. He was astonished about the teaching of Jesus. The teaching about the Lord. He heard the gospel and he says, I want that. And he gave his life to Christ in the moment and was saved. How awesome is that? You know, it's really interesting that I love when history also like confirms the Bible is accurate. And so I want to share something with you. There was this man named Sir William Ramsey. You may have heard him, but he was like a teacher and an archaeologist in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And anyways, he was down in this area of Cyprus, and this is what he says. He said, there are inscriptions bearing Sergius Paulus' name. That's the governor. And they, they've been found on, the, on Cyprus confirming that he was a Christian. And not only that, his entire family became Christians as well. Isn't that awesome? I mean, even history confirms that what's written here in the book of Acts was absolutely true, just like it says. You know, wouldn't you think that something like that would make people look at it and go, Wow. It, it, that must be true. You know, I mean, archaeologists all over the place, they find stuff that proves the Bible all the time. Every time they look, they're finding stuff, well, we didn't think that was true, but there it is again. For a while, it was King David, like, well, they always talk about this great King David, but we've never found any evidence. Well, guess what they found a number of years ago? An inscription with King David. No kidding. Wow. The Bible's true, folks. The Bible is absolutely true. And yet, so many still refuse to believe. But you know what the good news is? Is many don't refuse. There are many people that respond. And what I love about the gospel is the Bible tells us that this message of Christ will prevail in the end. John 6, 37 through 39, listen to what this says. This is Jesus speaking. 
He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. He was, t- he was talking about you and me. Do you realize that? If, if you know Jesus, he was talking about you. And if you don't know Jesus yet, respond. He'll be talking about you too. <laughs> he says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who has sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? If you know Christ, you belong to him. God, God the Father has given you to Jesus to be his, to be part of his body, to be a part of his church, to be one with him. And you know what the good news about that passage tells us? And so many words it says, we're going to die someday, but you know what? He's going to raise us to life someday. Just like Christ rose from the dead and walked out of that grave one day, when that trumpet sounds, the dead are going to rise first. Those who are still around are going to meet him in the air. We're going to see our Savior face to face. That's what that verse is, in a nutshell is kind of saying. Isn't that awesome? Man. See, for those God knows will come to faith, in Christ, the gospel will prevail. It doesn't matter who they are, how bad their past is, God will reach them. It doesn't matter if they are in the jungles of South America or in the frozen tundra of Siberia. If God knows they're going to receive Jesus and be saved, I guarantee you it is going to happen. He will do whatever it takes. He will do, he will do whatever he needs to do to remove whatever roadblock is in their way. He will remove it because if he knows and he sees, he is going to reach that person. In the end, friends, the gospel will prevail. And as I read earlier in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, when it does, guess what comes next? Jesus is coming back. King Jesus will himself be reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When the final person hears the final message of the gospel and they respond, the Bible tells us Jesus is coming back. I don't know about you folks, I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to that day. Let's get busy and make that day come. Let's get busy doing the work that he's called us to do. Let's get busy about our Father's business. Let's live out his power in this world and reach the world. If God has changed your life, do the work to help change somebody else's. And I'm going to end with this verse, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. This is what God says about you. He says, you are his masterpiece. He has created you anew in Christ Jesus for the good work that he has called you to do. You know what that good work is? Get out there and tell people about Jesus. Let's get busy. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word. Thank you, God, so much for this incredible message that we know is the gospel, this this message of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, our Lord, who has opened up the doors for salvation, that we can be forgiven and saved, made part of your forever family children of Almighty God. It's just incredible to think about. Thank you, Lord. Father, for those of us that know you as Savior already, will you just let those truths sink deep down into our soul? Let it affect us to our very core that this grace is amazing. It truly is amazing. And and let our response be what we talked about here tonight, let us be compelled inwardly to go out into this world in an obedience, tell somebody else about the message that saved us. But Father, there may be some here tonight that have never made that decision. They never made that decision. If they were to die tonight, 
There may be some in here that when, when the question is asked to them before your throne, why should I let you come into my kingdom? Some may say, well, because of my good works, because I did this or because I did that. But Lord, the only, the only answer that's going to get us in is if we say, because I know Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. So Father, if, there, if there's somebody here tonight or somebody listening to this that has never made that decision, tonight, God, your word makes it clear that they just call out to you in prayer. If they would just speak to you and say, God, I am a sinner. I know I've messed up, but I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that he rose again, and I believe that is good enough to save me. So Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Forgive me. I want to become yours. God, your word tells us that, that a person does that. They will be saved. Well, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in mighty, his mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. If we close tonight, we're going to sing just a song of um, just praise.